Manas. So this afternoon we will be returning to the Vipassana presentation in Penjana Bush's text. And where he will go immediately, as soon as we open up, open it up, is to identifying what's called the object of reputation or the object of negation. So let's just linger there because what I'd like to do as usual is try to completely weave theory together with practice. So the theory is right there to illuminate the practice. We come from the practice and that comes and illuminates the theory, the teachings. So when we go back to the teachings, oh, I get it, I get it. I know what he's talking about, right? Because you've had some taste. And so that's really the ideal. To my mind, Buddhism should always be taught that way. And, and physics is taught that way. And mathematics is taught that way. When I was studying mathematics, you learn something and immediately you're, you're, you're working on problems. In physics, you learn something and then you're running the experiment. It's really good. So, let's linger there just a little bit because in, in the spirit of wanting to unify theory and practice. So it's, it's very straightforward. That is, conceptually, it's not difficult at all to understand what is meant, what is the object of negation, what is, for example, the self that is to be negated. Well, first of all, just to make it really clear, it's something that doesn't exist, but appears to exist, is grasped onto as being existent. Uh, so I'll give, okay, I'm going to give a silly example that I give many times, but just because it's so obvious. Imagine something that's not true, and that is, I think I'm not a reincarnation of Napoleon, which I could be, one chance out of what, 10 trillion, whatever, but imagine that I actually think I am Napoleon, you know, the little short guy back there in the 19th century. And I th- I'm actually, so I'm delusional, you know, and actually, so I'm, I have that. And I'm walking around and I think that I'm actually Napoleon, okay? And so I may even take on a French accent and I put my hand here and, you know, I expect everybody to salute me. And, but then I go to Catalina, you know, she's, she's dealt with this before. <laughs> she gives me a really sustained therapy and showing, well, in fact, you know, there's just no evidence that the, the Napoleon you think you are actually exists. Number one, you're taller. Number two, you don't speak French. Number three, he's dead. She's kind of step by step taking me through it, you know, until finally uh, she persuades me that where I am, there is no Napoleon. And then I I pay my bill and, you know. (laughs) And she's done her work. But the, the Napoleon that I think I am is the Napoleon to be refuted. Because in fact, I'm taking it very seriously. And if you show me a lot of respect, I feel very puffed up. If you ridicule me or say I'm crazy, then I feel very offended, very upset, because I am Napoleon and you're not acknowledging who I am. So, what is what does exist in this, you know, this example? What does exist is I do think I'm Napoleon. I'm grasping, apprehending myself as Napoleon, and that does have causal efficacy. That has all kinds of influences, right? It's existent as anything else. The thing that doesn't exist is the Napoleon that I think I am. Okay? So it's a silly example, but then you can say, okay, where, where is it not silly? So the object of reputation is that, let's say, let's say a self, well, it turned out to be anything else too, but a self that exists, here's it in a nutshell, a self that exists prior to and independent of any conceptual or verbal designation. Just that simple. It's already there. It, prior to and independent of conceiving of it, labeling it, conceptually or verbally, it's already there. Almost like, it's already there, stupid. You know, that, that self that exists 
by its own inherent nature. It's really there. It exists by its own nature. It exists from its own side prior to and independent of any conceptual designation, any labeling process. That is the self that we grasp onto. So what is said? It is said that that kind of delusion is conate. We don't learn it. It's conate. But with careful analysis, with the sharp sword of prajna, of intelligence, then we can cut through that and apprehend the very absence of that self. Now, of course, it's not just the self, it's everything else as well. So I've mentioned before and gave very, I think, really brilliantly clear definition of metaphysical realism uh, as defined by Hilary Putnam, because he really knew his stuff extremely well. But metaphysical realism, you, you remember, there's one true description of the universe. It's already out there. It can be mapped. It can be known. And we know it by way of appearances. So the, does the sky really inherently exist as blue? No. But is there a sky out there that's kind of behind the blue that's really there already? Well, of course. But where this really, I think it becomes really obvious, is think of the sun and the moon, just for starters. Think of the sun and the moon. Who doesn't think? that the moon is really out there. You know, 237,000 miles, whatever, something like that. Who doesn't think there's a great big chunk of cold rock or half-cold, half-hot rock out there that is really, I mean, it's really out there. right? And then the sun, all the more so, 98 million miles away, something like that. Who doesn't think it's really out there? I mean, you call that anything. You can call it a hot fudge Sunday if you like. Call it anything you like. You can think about it. Not think about it. It doesn't matter what you call it, what you think about it, or anybody thinks about it. It is what it is. And you just happen to call it the sun. Tibetans call it nima. So what? It is what it is. And our labels are just kind of fluff, like dropping a feather on a tank. Well, the tank doesn't care. It's already there. Right? And so this is very, very natural. And we're, it's inborn. That is, it's conate. So when we hear about achieving the fourth jhana and being able to stroke the sun and the moon, we just makes one just burst out, burst out in laughter. You know, whoa, boy, with you, I, I had no idea Buddhists could be that superstitious. This is like, cuckoo, cuckoo, you know, really over the board. Like, this is where we just start, ha, ha, man, are they Looney Tunes, you know. And of course, if metaphysical realism is correct, then they are. We are. Uh, I am. You know? So I've emphasized this morning again, I've done it a number of times, the importance of reinvigorating and establishing the authenticity of contemplative inquiry as an authentic mode of investigating nature of reality that can give rise to and has given, risen to, has given uh, rise to authentic discoveries that can be replicated and become consensual knowledge. Right? Uh, what's the big deal? And I think the big deal, part of it, it's always been true, because this is how you began liberated, not by, not by science. Science is not making it liberated. It's making our lives much more hedonically pleasant if you know, we don't destroy ourselves in the process. But it's like right now science has no competition. I mean, where's the alternative view of the planet, which we've all seen the photos a thousand or ten thousand times? Who of us doesn't think the planet is really round? And it's really out there. And in fact, that it's mostly blue? <laughs> Until you say, well, no, no, it's round, but it's not really blue. 
because blue is just generated by visual cortex, right? And it's not brown, and it's not shiny. You know, but kind of, kind of like the earth, but not blue. That's what's really there, and it's not brown. And it's not warm. You know, kind of like invisible earth that's round. When you look for exactly what is it you think that's really out there, it does start to get a bit dodgy, you know, if you do start thinking about it. But that it's round and heavy. Who doesn't think that's true? And I think for very good reason. There's no competition. There's no competition. Well, there is, but hardly anybody knows about it. It's like before quantum mechanics came along, before specifically Einstein came along. Einstein, not only with his relativity theory, Einstein was the first one to come up with the notion of photons. He didn't call them that, but he was the first one of thinking that light actually traveled through space as quanta, and we called them photons. He came up with that idea, 1905. Pretty sharp guy. I think we have to agree he's pretty smart. And then, of course, they found evidence for that effect. Set up the right type of measuring system. And lo and behold, yeah, there's no, no, no doubt about it. Life comes, light, light comes in quanta. But until then, it was, it, there was only one view of light by knowledgeable, well-educated scientists and the general public in the late 19th century. And that light consists of fields, electromagnetic fields, traveling through space at the speed of light. And it was a purely mechanical view of light. And it does have wave properties, so it... Lord Kelvin said, there's one thing we are absolutely certain of, and that is the existence of the luminiferous ether. Space has to be pervaded by a a subtle medium, such that when light travels through it, light waves, fields of electromagnetic energy, travel through space. They do display wave properties. I mean, that was simply known unequivocally. It's true. And therefore, there has to be a medium that ripples, just like waves in the water. Well, you don't have any waves in the water if there's no water. And you don't have any sound waves if there's no air. And you don't have any light waves if you just have a sheer vacuity, just sheer emptiness of space. If space is just nothing, there's nothing to ripple. So logically, there had to be this subtle ether an ethereal medium, medium that when light traveled through it, it would ripple and set up all these wave patterns, interference patterns, which were very, very well known. But ether had to exist. Logically, it had to exist. Did they have any evidence for it? No, actually, there was no evidence for it at all. But given this way of viewing reality, classical physics, late 19th century, it had to exist. Until somebody, two guys, proved it didn't. Michelson Morley, 1879, I think it was. They set up a very sophisticated measurement that had there been... This is relevant. I'm not just meandering here. They, found, they discovered the absence. They discovered... They didn't, it's not that they didn't find the ether, and that's easy. I haven't found it. So what? They discovered the absence of the ether with a very subtle experiment. You can check it out on a wiki. It's pretty, pretty clearly. But you have to kind of know physics a bit to know, understand it. But it was really... They nailed it. They set up an experiment that if the ether did exist, it would have showed up in their experiment. It would have shown itself. It didn't. Therefore, they ascertained the absence of the ether, which should have been impossible because it had to exist. If you assume that 
space, time, matter, energy are all absolutely real. And there's one way of viewing reality, and that's the way of 19th century physics. So this was back in 1879, no internet. So their discovery, you know, there's just a couple of guys out in, in, in America ran, ran this experiment. But it didn't kind of spread like wildfire. Like when the Higgs boson was discovered, you know, we know it seconds later practically, internet and all of that. We know that perfectly well. But they didn't have anything like that. So they made discovery. And several years later, Lord Kelvin was still saying, we're absolutely certain the, the ether exists. This is about five years after it was determined that it didn't exist. Because, you know, they're Americans and he was an English and he was an aristocrat. So what could, what could those American yahoos know anyway? You know, so it didn't get through. But then Michelson Morley shook things up because it should absolutely exist and it doesn't. But then how do you account for the empirical fact that wave, waves of light show interference patterns when there's nothing to wave? You know? And they don't go like this. Light doesn't go like a dolphin up and going up. You know? It doesn't do that. You know? And so, well, Einstein came along. Showed. And then, of course, Niels Bohr and the others showed the well. Einstein remained a metaphysical realist to the, to the, to the rest of his days. I think it actually stopped him in some very important ways. But people like the younger ones, as, as Max Planck said, science progresses funeral by funeral. <laughs> it's true. The old ones have to die off. You know, Poincaré, brilliant physicist, he just he was so entrenched in the 19th century. He was extremely bright. He could never make that shift over into the new physics. So he had to die. Well, he's going to die anyway, but that generation, most of them have to die out. And then you get these young upstarts like Werner Heisenberg, kid, you know, in his 20s, and he's making these groundbreaking discoveries in quantum mechanics and shaking everything up. That light is not inherently a wave, nor is it inherently a particle. It rises relative to but not relative system of measurement. But now as soon as you have that, now that you have two legitimate, now this is where it comes to shamatha, jhanas and stroking the sun and the moon. Most people wouldn't see the connection, but for you it's, I think, obvious at this point. <laughs> and that is, if you think the only way, the only possible way, the one way, you know this notion, we have the one way, we have the only way. If there's only one way to measure light, and that's the way of 19th century physics, and it always shows itself to be a wave, then you just assume that's the way it is inherently, objectively. We're just mapping what is already absolutely there, independent of any system of measurement. Come to quantum mechanics, and they devise another system of measurement, and from that perspective, light is unequivocally composed of quanta. Little BBs, little packets, little pockets of light, little pockets of pulses of energy, which are not at all like waves. They do not have wave properties, and waves do not have particle qualities. And so now that shakes things up. Now, okay, it's fine from your perspective to say that light is a wave. On the other hand, from this perspective, which is equally valid, light is not a wave. It's particles. It's composed of particles. And now you have to get over that. This is where they said that the very foundations are shaking beneath us. Because it's now very hard to be a metaphysical realist in foundational physics. So we are the same here. There's only, now here in the two, years 2016, in terms of the public domain, there's only one way to study the universe. Because philosophers have a whole bunch of ideas, very interesting, but no consensus, so there's no competition. 
And then Muslims and Christians, Buddhists, Jews, and so forth, the religions, they have all kinds of beliefs, and they believe them, but then the, the, Hindu, the Hindus don't believe what the, the Taoists say, and the Taoists don't believe what the Christians say, and the Christians don't believe what the Buddhists say, and the Theravada Buddhists don't say what the Mayanas say, and the Golupas don't buy that Dzogchen business, you know. <laughs> right? That, as one said, woolly thinking. <laughs> <laughs> one Galupa Geshe, when his holiness was teaching Dzogchen in, in France, there was one Geshe I was sitting next to, you know, just what these Westerners need, woolly thinking. <laughs> and his own guru was teaching this, you know, woolly thinking. <laughs> so, so that's no competition. If even the Galupas and the Nyingbapas can't agree, they're not exactly competition to, well, we don't agree, but, you know, after all, the sons are not really out there. You know, who's going to believe them? And so this is where contemplative inquiry could be far more important than moving from classical physics to quantum mechanics. If it can be demonstrated with full open-minded collaboration with scientists, it's not trying to convert anybody here, but just show there are in fact different ways of investigating reality that have their own legitimacy. And it shows once again the complementarity. That was Niels Bohr really picked up on that, one of the great architects of quantum mechanics. It was his symbol. He used the yin yang symbol for, for his, on his family, something his family. Yeah, that, what's it called? Chris. Chris. Chris, exactly, right. Didn't he? I'm not sure he did. And so, right now we're stuck because religion's not rising to the challenge of providing avenues of knowledge. Philosophy never has, not since Pythagoras, perhaps. And the science is just dominating, and just they're so good at it. So they're not to blame. They've just succeeded where the others have not. But of course, as soon as we consider that science is the only way, then there's one story. It not, has nothing to do with Mount Meru or the garden and the serpent and the tree. It has to do with the Big Bang being completely physical. And eight billion years later, life forming on our planet, or more like 10 billion years, give or take, 10 billion liters light forming on our planet, where did the life come from? Well, that was what was already there, what was already there. Only physical stuff. And then give it another billion years or so, and then the first conscious organisms start coming out. And where did, where did their consciousness come from? Well, what was already there? Chemicals, electricity. And now here we are, where do we come from? More primitive us's, you know, our progenitors. And where do they come? Well, then it's inevitable that you're stuck with materialism. Because it all came out of matter. Why did it come out of matter? Because those are the only questions they were asking. When they're asking about the origin of the universe, they're asking physical questions using physical apparatuses and coming up with physical answers, which is inevitable. So of course they think the Big Bang and the first 10 billion years of, of you know, evolution in the, in the universe is all physical, because that's all they know how to measure. So, contemplative inquiry is kind of really the only, the only hope that humanity can get its feet unstuck from the ruts of materialism. Because materialism makes really not only good sense, it makes unavoidable sense. If you consider science as the only way to explore reality. I mean, where's the wiggle room? If the first 10 billion years of the universe was all physical, life emerged from that and conscious organisms came out of that, then it's kind of like, we have no choice here. That's why when I engage with a lot of scientists and to suggest a non-materialistic way of viewing reality, they say, but 
They just don't, don't even know how to think about that. And I understand why. And it's not because they're not intelligent. I'm sure a lot of them are a lot more intelligent than I am. You know, very distinguished, world, world-class world scientists, big reputations. For very good reason, they've earned it. They can't even imagine how you could work in a scientific context without working in a materialistic context. You know, because there is no second route. There's no alternative, a viable mode of inquiry. And shamat is crucial for that. To make it replicable, rigorous, sustained, right? Not just Vipassana. Vipassana will be pecking at it. Pecking at it. But then you always fall back. The scientists have continuity. They have their system of measurement. They just keep on going and going and going. You know? Until a weasel gets in there and screws things up. <laughs> you know what happened? Flo? Elizabeth. Elizabeth, thank you. Elizabeth brought to my attention that this $7 billion Hadron Supercollider... They had to shut it down. All those 3,000 employees, they all, you know, had to wait. There's a weasel <laughs> or a marten, or she was thinking maybe it was a, a marmot. <laughs> Chewed through one of their wires and the whole thing went completely. <laughs> so $7 billion versus weasel. Weasel wins <laughs> for a while. In any case, that is definitely diversion. Um, but even their shamata breaks down sometimes, you know. They slipped into laxity. The heart and large hadron supercollider slipped into laxity when the weasel, you know, cut out their vividness. Okay, yes, I'm stretching. Okay. So, it's identifying the object to be refuted. The sun existing from its own side, really there? That's the object to be refuted. The moon, really there from its own side? Hard, round, big? pulling on the oceans, causing the tides and so forth, that's the object to be refuted. The earth is something that's inherently spherical, big and heavy, with a hard core, hot core, that's the object to be refuted. And so is Mount Meru, existing from its own side. Because if you were living in Tibet 500 years ago, there's only one approach to viewing reality, exploring reality. The yogis. They are the only ones. There was no competition. The Hindus pretty much agreed with them. They didn't talk that much with the Chinese about deep things. It was more, mostly trade, you know, mundane stuff. So the Tibetans up on the top of the world, for them there, was, there were really only one group of authorities. And they, they differed here and there. But overall, ask any Nyamapa, Gelupa, Sakya, Kagyu, is, you know, is Mount Meru in the center of our world? Do we have four continents around that? And then the, the eight subcontinents? And do we have the, they say, oh yeah, we all agree, of course, sure, sure, sure. Let's and then, quite naturally, the general laity would assume that's inherently existent. Because there's only one way to understand reality. And our greatest, our, our Einsteins and Niels Bohr's and Newtons, they all agree on this. And so I told you the story of this, this young Tibetan friend of mine, whose mother, remember her? She was the nomadic woman living out in eastern Tibet. And her son's very cosmopolitan, very spoke good English, and so he travels all over the place. He went back and spoke with his mother, visited his mother. And, she told, and he told her that he'd visited America. And she said, oh, America, where is that with respect to Mount Meru? Is it on the other side of Mount Meru or this side of Mount Meru? You know? And it's not a silly question. Because she probably, probably had simply no knowledge at all about science. So there we are. So we're going to try to bring this into practice, not worrying for the time being too much about the sun, moon, or the earth, and whether they inherently have those, those shapes 
that momentum, that mass, the heat, uh, energy, and so forth and so on. But come to the one that's most important, and that is the reification of self. I'm going to end on this point before we go to meditation, but all of this actually dovetails completely with what we're about to read from the 17th century, which could have just as easily been written yesterday uh, by some very fine Galupa scholar. Very interesting point, I think, subtle and important from Tsongkhapa. Many others may have said it, but I know he said it. And that is, in the way we apprehend reality, he said we do so in three ways. In three ways. That is, generically, in general, people do apprehend reality in three ways. Not everybody does, but among different individuals, there are three modes. And one is that we attend to appearances, appearances of ourself, appearance of other people, the sun, moon, and the planet, and so forth, and all the appearances suggest that the phenomena that are appearing exist from their own side. And we grasp onto them as such, and that is we reify. The sun is really being out there, pretty much as it appears, maybe with a bit of modification, like, okay, it's not yellow, but besides that, it's pretty much that. So the first mode is that we see appearances that appear to, as if they're existing from their own side, and then we, we take them at face value. Maybe not quite face value. Okay. I mean, if you're not a naive realist, okay, say so it's, it's not yellow, but besides that, yeah, it's pretty much, that's it. It's invisible, but that's an invisible sun, but that's what's really there. And it is really spewing photons all over the, all over the place. And radiation, I mean, if we, you know, if we blow, the, blow, blow our, 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 our atmosphere here, then we'll have serious problems with radiation sickness. Doesn't matter what you believe, be a Buddhist, Christian, whatever, doesn't matter because that radiation is going to get you. Just like if you played with uranium, just toss it around in your hand, you're going to get really sick and then die. Doesn't matter what you believe. It just doesn't matter at all what you believe. You can think it's lead, you can think it's. doesn't matter. It really is spewing out high energy photons and they will really make you sick and then kill you. And so there's a way of simply quite conately, naturally, grasping onto phenomena as, as if they truly exist. And that is said to be root delusion, core delusion. Whenever men, any mental affliction operates in the, in the Madhyamaka view, it's operate, always operating from that basis. Reifying whatever is the target of our craving, our hostility, jealousy, pride, and so forth. It's reified first, and then we compound a mental affliction on top of a mental affliction. And that's where it really hurts. That's where it really starts to hurt. Right? So there's one way. And then there's the way of, let's say, an Adya Bodhisattva who's gained direct realization of emptiness, or a Vijayadana for that matter, but we can stick with an Adya Bodhisattva, who knows through incisive, incisive research and conclusive ascertainment that phenomena, in fact no phenomena, exists by its own inherent nature. And so when they come out of meditative equipoise and they're attending to the world of appearances, all the appearances still appearing as if they exist from their own side. They do not apprehend them as such. They apprehend them as being empty, contrary to appearances. So they view them as they are and not as they appear. They do not reify, but in, on the contrary, they apprehend the phenomena themselves, their bodies, the environment, other people, and so forth, as being empty appearances, not existing from their own side. That's another way of viewing the same phenomena. So first there was a mountain, then there was no mountain, then there was a mountain, that kind of theme. First there's a mountain, it's reified. Then there's no mountain when you settle in meditative equipoise and emptiness, and the entire world vanishes. Then you come out of meditative equipoise, you're engaging with the world of appearances, 
And yes, there's a mountain right over yonder, and it's a certain number of kilometers away. Uh, it just doesn't exist from its own side. You know? But still, it's over there, and it's so, so many kilometers away. That's when the mountain is there, but not in the same way. You didn't just do a, didn't go around the block and start out where you started, or end up where you started from. So that's the second way. Okay. It arises. You see it, you apprehend it, but you do not reify it, and you see it as being empty of inherent nature. That's how you, that's how you apprehend it, right? That's the second way. And the third way is undifferentiated. And that is we apprehend, but the way we apprehend, whatever it may be, doesn't crystallize itself to affirm reification, nor does it have the insight into seeing the emptiness. It just kind of floats without drawing that distinction. And that's the third way. Okay? So what I'd like to do now is try to take all this theory, references to quantum mechanics and the multi-luminiverse ether and so forth, and bring this home right now in our practice. And here will be, the, here will be the, the session. I want to talk about it very briefly, but I will guide it. And that is what I'd like to do now, give it just to uh, front-load it just a little bit. Okay, subtle body, speech, and mind, of course. Then go right into taking the mind onto the path. Okay, classic practice, subtly minded, it's natural state. So resting there. But in fact, just before doing that, well, as we've done before, just rest for a little while there. In awareness of awareness, quietly, non-conceptually, not designating yourself as anything, as much as possible, resting in a non-conceptually designating mode where you're just quiet. So there's no crystallized sense of I am. Just quiet. Like that. Rest there. And then when I give you the cue, then turn the light of your awareness to the space of the mind, the events arising within it. And then watch very closely, because we're not just going to, I'm not going to let you off the hook and just let you go back to Shamatha. You have to crack the Vipassana whip. And that is, as you're resting there, stuff will come up, of course, as it's supposed to. And on occasion, you may very well have a sense that you're thinking a thought. There's cognitive fusion, that you were resting in stillness, and then you're not. You're thinking a thought. When you see that occur, direct your attention inwards and see how are you conceiving of yourself. Who are you, the thinker? Do you, do you have a sense of yourself as being someone really in here, existing prior to and independent of any thoughts about yourself? that really thought that thought? A real agent in here? Is that your sense? Right. Or a thought arises, and from the very moment it arises, you sense it's just an empty appearance, and in terms of there being any thinker who thought the thought, just having a sense of that too is quite <coughs> ethereal. Just a name. Just a name. But nothing behind it, nothing really there that is the referent of the name, just the name. Is that the case? That you actually have an experience of yourself. You don't have to be an Arya Bodhisattva for this. You might have that experience today. Of having a sense of self arising, but even as it arises, you already sense it's just a name, it's just empty. Just an appearance. Nothing more than an appearance. And likewise, the thought that was thought 
conceived by the agent, empty appearance. And if you can bring really a very sharp blade of Vipassana to this, you might note on other occasions the thought arises, and the sense of there being the agent is just undifferentiated. You don't have a sense, I thought that, nor do you have that clear insight that just occurred, and the, and the thinker is just a word, just a label. It's undifferentiated. So see, this is now fine-tuning. Yeah? But it's within that. See if you can identify. How do you conceive of yourself? How do you do that? I'll give an analogy, and then we'll go to the practice. Because it's a close, pretty, pretty close analogy. I like it. And that is, imagine that you're resting. As a thought experiment, it's not hard at all. Imagine that you're resting in dreamless sleep. But you're lucid. Okay? Not terribly hard to imagine. I mean, it's, just, it's a sheer vacuity. No appearances arising. So it's that perfect sensory deprivation tank, that contemplative, contemplative sensory deprivation tank, the perfect one. So there's no appearances arising, but you're clearly awake, you're clearly cognizant, the mind's bright, and you're just resting there, not talking about it. Just resting. So that's a thought experiment, right? And you're in deep, dreamless sleep, but you're very lucid. And then some karmic energies move, and a dream pops up, and you're in it, right? You're in it. A dream pops up, and you're, you're a, you are a persona within the dream. Okay, that happens. It happens a lot. In that first moment that you've taken on the form of somebody in the dream, in the context, of course, of the dreamscape and possibly other people, in that first moment, have you lost your lucidity and you think that's who you really are? In other words, is the first moment one of ignorance and the second one of delusion, reifying yourself as this little person in the dream with, unbeknownst to you, a very short lifespan? You know, is that the first moment? of unawareness and then delusion and reifying yourself as really being this person in the dream. Is that the case? It is pretty much for non-lucid dreams. Or is it the case that you sustained your lucidity that you already had while you're simply resting in lucid dreamless sleep and in that first moment there you are and you recognize you're just an apparition. That the person you're appearing is just, just, just that. It's an empty appearance. And you know that everything there, you, you're, you're born into the dream lucid. And you recognize everybody in the dream. They're not people. They're not really there. These are apparitions, empty appearances. They're all empty appearances. I'm an empty appearance. So some people have dreams that way. If they're lucid already in the dreamless sleep, they may enter into the dream in the first moment knowing, and the second moment recognizing the dream as the dream, right? And then playing that out. So that's the second possibility, right? You could be lucid, you could be knowing, and then be unknowing, and reify. You could be knowing, be, continue being knowing, and apprehend yourself as a mere label, an empty appearance, having no real existence whatsoever, or anything else in the dream. That's the second possibility. Or third possibility is it might just be undifferentiated. And that is the dream starts, and not really reifying, but not really seeing either. That kind of hazy middle ground. No man's land, where you haven't crystallized on either side. Just like that. That's a possibility. Okay? All righty.
Put on your seatbelts. the motivation of bodhicitta, settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state, culminating in your awareness simply resting in its own place, still and clear, free of grasping. As you simply let your awareness rest, empty of come, empty of conceptualization, and therefore at least relatively empty of conceptual designation, including the designation I am, you may find that your sense of your own identity is undifferentiated not crystallized and reified as a real self in here who is doing the meditation, but neither either ascertaining the emptiness of your own identity, undifferentiated. See if that's true.
let your eyes be at least partially open, vacantly rest your gaze in the space in front of you. And direct the flow of your mental awareness single-pointedly to the space of the mind and whatever arises within it. Sustaining the stillness of your awareness within the movements of the mind. And within the range of events arising in the space of the mind, there are mental images, discursive thoughts that you simply observe. These empty appearances arising from, present in the space of the mind, dissolving back into that space. But there are also these subjective impulses, the experiencing of thinking a thought, the experience of desiring, experience of feeling and emotion. Some thoughts seem to occur of themselves, spontaneously, with no agent, nobody doing them. They just happen. But other thoughts seem to be the product of your mind. They seem to be what you've done. You thought that. So examine closely. When the mind is active in terms of thinking, desiring, emoting. How do you conceive of yourself as the thinker, the one who's desiring, the one who's remembering, the one who's meditating? onto yourself as being really in here, existing by your own characteristics? Do you apprehend yourself as being empty of such an inherent nature? Or is your sense of personal identity undifferentiated? Examine closely. If you start getting a bit tight, a bit stressed, by the difficulty of the practice. Throttle back, ease up, 
and just rest in awareness and watch the show. This illusory display of appearances arising and passing in the theatre of the mind. In this practice, we can ask of ourselves, is it true? What Tsongkhapa and the whole Majamaka tradition says, that from birth we do naturally conceive of ourselves as being inherently existent. The sense of being someone, some real person, who may be viewed in different ways by people with different perspectives, but regardless of all their perspectives, they're all seeing a nuclear me, someone who's really here, who appears in different ways to different people, but nevertheless is really here, the real me, the one we may be afraid to disclose. We are shy about opening up. We may not want people to see the real me, one that we think we are privy to and others are not.
You think there is a real you? And if so, how do you appear to yourself?
very briefly before we <coughs> return to this 17th century text. We educated in modernity, it doesn't matter whether it's Singapore or Beijing or wherever, but in modernity, where those of who have some education in science and so on have, were kind of brought up naturally thinking in terms of our metaphysically, metaphysically realist view of reality, that all right, what exists out there doesn't have color, doesn't have smell and taste, but so we're not reifying those. We recognize those are just, they're just empty appearances arising independence upon our visual cortex, auditory cortices, and so forth. But what's really out there is, well, space is real, and mass is real, and shape is real. And this becomes really obvious. This will be obvious one of these days if we have some big, some big asteroid, or big, really big one, coming on a trajectory that's going to strike our planet. There will be this massive affirmation of metaphysical realism if that happens. <laughs> people exa- asking exactly how far away is it really? How big is it really? How much mass does it have really? Will we really survive or not? This is all absolute... <laughs> grasping to the true existence of our planet and the space between the planet and the asteroid and the speed with which the asteroid and the and so forth and so on. So this this really strikes home that reification, right? So just very briefly and just for fun, thought experiment. Okay, thought experiment. Ask you to use your imagination. Imagine just a vast, open, limitless expanse of space, sheer empty space. Deep space, empty space, but with nothing in it, no galaxies, no planet, no elementary particles, nothing, just a total sheer emptiness of space in all directions with no limits. So imagine that. And now imagine within that space one, one particle, let's say an electron, just one lonely little particle, an electron, hanging all by itself in the vastness of space. Is it moving or not? <laughs> is it, it's a simple question, is it, is it moving? Like just, you know, <laughs> on an endless quest for, you know, electron, positron, you know, the soulmate. <laughs> or is it still? Is it moving or is it still? You can't tell because there's nothing to relate to it. It's vast space. Yeah. The answer for people listening by podcast is there's no answer to that question because to say that it's moving or not has to be relative to something else. And if all there is about it is just empty space. But now what if space itself, as was assumed until Einstein, is absolute? Space provides an absolute, objective, real context. As was assumed when Lord Kelvin and pretty much everybody of of his learned peers assumed that that space was completely permeated by this luminiferous ether, which was real, substantial, but very, very subtle. Then could you ask, is it really in motion? Yeah, you could. If you could identify that luminiferous ether, then the space that it occupies would be real, because it's real, and that would provide an absolute point of reference 
with respect to which you could ask, you could answer in a meaningful way, yes, that one isolated electron is moving with respect to space. It was in this part of space, and then it moved to that part of space. Right? Okay. Now let's make it a little tiny bit more interesting. Two electrons. <laughs> Two electrons. And the distance between them is increasing. They're getting further and further apart. Which one is in motion? Or are they both in motion? And they're in that same infinite space. With Open expanse. There's all, in the whole universe, they're just Adam and Eve. Just, or let's say a positron and an electron. Just, you know, they started the whole thing. If, if, there, if the distance between them is increasing, they have to be both moving? Yes. Why? Why is it... I don't why. why. isn't it enough for one? I mean, you just... You're, you're the girl. Imagine, you're the electron and I'm positron. And I just say, stay put, honey. Stay put. I'm going off, I'm going off looking for... I'm moving because you're moving. No, no, but you're the electron and I'm the positron. Yeah. And I say, stay home. I'm going to go out and check to see if I can find some other electrons out there. <laughs> The first, the first positron is definitely a rascal. You know? <laughs> so I just say, stay put. Yeah. And so, what's wrong with that? Why can't? If it's, in, if it's infinite space, yeah. And you're moving. I'm also moving. Why? Why can't? I, why can't you just be obedient? Uh-huh. Don't move. Just stay home. Because I, I need to know where to get. If I don't find anybody else, I want to find. I want to know where you are. <laughs> stay at home, so I'll know where to look. Because if you've wandered off, I might not. And then I'll really be on my own. That'll be awful. No. But I'd like to do a bit of a fishing expedition here. Find some other cute electrons out there. So why can't you just stay put and I head off? What's wrong with that? Why, why, why? I can't articulate it, but I can see it. I can't Does anybody agree that she can't just stay home and I can move? Why? Yeah, that's fine if you can't articulate it. To my mind, I, could, I can take off and you can stay. You don't have to move. You don't have to follow me. Which would make the, if you're following me, but I'm going faster, the distance would, between us would increase, but not as fast as if you'd stayed home. Yeah. But of course, if you ran as fast as I did, then the distance between us wouldn't shift. Right. And if you ran faster than me, because you're going to catch me and give me a spanking, then the distance <laughs> would be like, getting smaller and smaller until whack you. <laughs> Isn't it? Until Einstein came along and just shook the whole universe. And that is, there is no absolute space. If there had been an ether, there would have to be absolute space. But there's no ether. There's an evidence of an absence of ether. And therefore, you can have the relativity of space-time. One final one, just for fun, yeah? And that is, you're traveling at a certain speed, and you look at your companion in your little little, little spaceship, and your companion is, these, is quite slender. But I'm traveling by you very, very rapidly. I'm traveling on the express at nine-tenths the speed of light. You're my slender, you're my slender companion, going really fast. Yeah, you're in a little cylinder with a companion, okay. and your companion is kind of slender like you, okay. right? Within your... Inertial frame of reference, because you're traveling at a constant speed. 
Yeah? But I zip by you, super duper. I'm going nine tenths the speed of light. And I observe you and your companion. And I see you both as really, really fat. <laughs> That's what I see. You know? You're really stretched out like that. You know? And so, what are you really then? Are you really thin or are you really, really fat? You're skinny and fat. Yes. I would say depending on from what perspective you're looking and who, you, who the observer is, right. is yeah. yeah. So you don't, then independent of initial frame of reference, you don't in, you're not independently fat or skinny. You're not independently heavy or light. You're not independently here or there, and you're not independently in still, still or in motion. That's all just from relativity theory. And that's not even including quantum mechanics. That's pretty, pretty breathtaking, isn't it? Yeah. And quantum mechanics goes even deeper than that. Yeah. Because Einstein did assume that light absolutely travels at 186,000 miles per second relative to any inertial frame of reference. So that's, that's an invariant. That's an absolute across all inertial frames of reference. And then quantum mechanics comes in and said, which light are you referring to, the particle or the wave? And what is the nature of that light? Does it exist independently of any system of measurement? See, this was really quite breathtaking. This all happened within about a decade or two, the first two decades of the 20th century. And it was such a... so, so explosive, so profoundly... Sh- shattering that most of the rest of the sciences and most of the rest of physics wanted to contain it. And they, that's only, that's only, a, that's relevant only at, spe- at, at velocities approaching the speed of light. But of course we're not, so it's not, not a problem. It's irrelevant to us because we're not even traveling remotely like. They've now discovered three planets that are Earth-like. They're only 40 light years away. It's a brand new discovery, just, just today, yesterday, very re- recently anyway. Uh, only 40 light years away, quite nearby. Except if you hop in one of our spaceships, it's millions of miles, millions of years to get there. Millions of years. Yeah. So, in other words, because our spaceships travel not even remotely, like not, not one-tenth the speed of light. And therefore it's kind of like, not irrelevant, but it's really not very relevant. In quantum mechanics, we get elementary particles. Most neuroscientists, with a marvelous exception of Donald Hoffman, are assuming the quantum effects are just irrelevant to brain activity because those are warm, big, gushy cells and not ele- elementary particles. And so there it is. So that's kind of softening us up. I think it's really, really helpful if that seemed like just kind of a diversion. I think it's really helpful to make use of the fact that we're living in the year 2016 and not as if we're living in 1879 because frankly, most of the cognitive sciences are still embedded in the late 19th century. You know? And that makes it very difficult to avoid statements like, um, you know, the only way to understand meditation is by understanding the underlying neural mechanisms. That's marvelous talk of the 18th century. It makes really good sense. The neural mechanisms, you know, the crinking wheels and the grinding of cells and the spewing out and so forth. Um, but kind of get real, you know, that was 140 years ago. 
to view this, the teachings on Dzogchen, the teachings on Madhyamaka, with some awareness. Not that science is proving Buddhism. We don't need science to prove Buddhism, and the quantum mechanical relativity doesn't need Buddhism to prove it. These are independent modes of inquiry. This is what makes it so fantastic. They're not crypto-Buddhists trying to bring Buddhism into physics. They're just really good physicists, right? And Tsongkhapa, and Longchenpa, and Lama Mipama Rinpoche, Benjamin Rinpoche, they no access to, well, of course, they didn't even have quantum mechanics back then. So the notion that there can be coming from different perspectives and coming in upon converted truth, that gets really powerful. Way beyond philosophy and way, way beyond religious belief. To maybe there's something really true here. Oh, lasso. So let's finally get back to the text. all the 15 minutes to go. Okay. Yibiyakaye, let's go. So, well, what is the concentration that directly effects the obtainment of liberation? This is rather scholarly speak here. Effects, because note it's with an E, not an A. So what is the samadhi that directly brings about? That doesn't mean influence, it means to bring about. The achievement of liberation. What is that samadhi? Okay. Go to the root text. If one discerns the lack of self of and lack of say, I'll just read it, but I have modified a lot of translations here. If one discerns the lack of self of phenomena and meditates on it, this absence of self, or I prefer the word identity, for reasons I've explained before. But a lot of most people say self, and so okay, if, if people are comfortable with that. Uh, if one discerns the lack of self, the absence of self of phenomena and meditates on the on on it this identitylessness, a phenomena that is the cause of obtaining the result, nirvana. No other cause will bring about peace. And this, of course, is the peace of nirvana. You get a lot of peace with shamatha, with samadhi, but it will not last. Okay? So, he's pointing to this, that implying here it's not enough to realize personal identitylessness. You need to realize the lack of self, or lack of the identityless, the emptiness of inherent nature of phenomena at large, and that is a way to, in seeing reality, of course, nirvana is equivalent to emptiness. That's how you realize emptiness. That's how you, re- you achieve nirvana. This states that, he continues now in his commentary, this states that one who discerns that phenomena are identityless, that is, devoid of an inherent identity existing in and of themselves, and meditates on the meaning thus discerned, will obtain the result, nirvana. Also, there is in such meditation on lack of self. In such meditation, there is no intrinsic division by way of subtle and coarse. Which is to say, there's no, in in all of Buddhism, there's no, when you speak of emptiness, emptiness, shunyata, there's no coarse shunyata and subtle shunyata. Like coarse shunyata for the sutrayana and subtle shunyata for vajrayana or for dzogchen. There's no such thing. It's either emptiness or it's not emptiness, but it's not internally, doesn't have a spectrum of subtle and, co- subtle and coarse. It's just what it is. It's the emptiness. It's a, it's a simple negation. So you don't have different flavors. It's a simple negation of inherent existence, right? However, but there is a division into lack of self or lack of inherent identity of phenomena and persons. So the, the emptiness in question is not a different type of emptiness when it's an emptiness of phenomena and an emptiness of persons, but the basis that is empty, 
Well, we can speak of persons, individuals, and then there's everything else, including the mind, the body, physical phenomena, and so forth and so on. As Sri Chantikirti teaches, the glorious Chantikirti teaches, the great propounder of the Prasangika view, interpretation of Madhyamaka, for the sake of freeing beings, this lack of self is taught as twofold, since it is divided into phenomena and persons. So simply speaking of two, really, what it really is, is two types of entities. There are persons, and then there's all the other type of entities. And persons, people, individuals, including animals, human beings, devas, and so forth, they are empty of inherent nature, and all other phenomena are also empty of inherent nature. In this regard, we make a distinction. But the emptiness is the same as the emptiness of inherent nature. Although of these two, the lack of identity of phenomena is established first in the scriptures and commentaries, as in the Prachan Paramita, the Mula Madhyamaka Karika, the great root text on Madhyamaka by Nagarjuna, and such. The lack of identity of phenomena is established first. When it comes to meditation, it is necessary to meditate first on the lack of self in persons. So you start from the center, you start from the emptiness of inherent nature of your own identity and move outwards from there. As taught in the King of Concentrations Sutra, the Samadhi Raja Sutra. So now, and this, this text is really about practice. So he's going to follow the, the practical route rather than the more theoretical route. And he's already said he's going to follow the where you first achieve the meditative state and you go to theory. Well, we've covered shamatha, there's a meditative state. But now, even going to theory, he's going to keep it very close to practice. So in the Samadhi Raja Sutra, it says, when you perceive an identity in yourself, or of yourself, the inner you, the real self, the you that has a mind, that has a body, and so forth, when you perceive an identity of yourself, that, per- that perception applies to all. just want to make sure I didn't cut out too much there. Yeah, I don't think I modified the meaning, did I? not. Don't think so. So if you, if you perceive that in yourself, you're going to perceive it everywhere else. The nature of all phenomena is utterly pure like the sky. So by knowing one, you know all. By seeing one, you see all. I'm a little bit suspicious. I would expect to see if you perceive the lack of identity of yourself. But that wasn't there in the original, was it? Okay. I'm not going to mess with it because I don't have the Tibetan in front of me, the Tibetan or the Sanskrit. But this, can be all, this will all be clear. Thus, in meditating on the lack of self of persons, it really makes me wonder whether it really should be saying if you perceive an ident- a lack of identity of yourself. That's what it really should say. Whether it says that, I don't know, but I know that's what it should say. If you, if you realize identitylessness with respect to yourself, by that same analysis, by analyzing whether you as an individual, a self, are identical with your body, your mind, the combination of both, or something separate, entirely separate, if you come to the conclusion on that basis that you do not inherently exist, you apply that as did Nagasena to a chariot. You did exactly that. And then the chariot is not found not to exist objectively. Okay, self, chariot, okay, everything else. Space, time, matter, energy, you name it. All these objects that populate the universe as we know it Every single object has attributes. Tell me the object that you can identify that doesn't have any attributes, or that you don't identify by way of its attributes. 
So no matter what it is, whether it's justice, whether it's peace, whether it's beauty, whether it's space, time, matter, or energy, the object has qualities, characteristics, by which we identify it. Right? Consciousness. We know it by way of its cognizant and luminous aspects. Right? And it has those two qualities. As soon as you have an entity that has qualities or has parts, either one or both, then you can ask, okay, the entity, is it identical to any one of its parts, the collection of its parts, or does it exist independently of its parts? And it doesn't matter whether it's you or a Higgs boson. It doesn't matter. If it's true for me that I have no inherent nature, the rest of the, the, rest of the universe just folded. If you really see the, if you, if you follow the implications, that's what he's really saying here. Right? So, thus, in meditating on the lack of self of persons, it is necessary at the outset to identify the object of negation, that is, the cause of negation. Sorry, I need to check the Tibetan on that one. Um, I'm just going to leave it. I didn't modify it earlier. I kind of started moving a bit more quickly when you got to the Vipassana section. As it says in the way of the Bodhisattva, Shantideva's Bodhicharavatara, uh, and I don't have the Tibetan with me now because I was, a little, I wanted to see what best my wife Vesna's and my translation was of this verse. I couldn't find it. Didn't have enough time. What's that? Thank you. Can you point right to it so I don't waste a lot of time? Okay, tapping ngopo, ah, tapping ngopo marekbar, okay. Tapping ngola, tapping ngola marekbar. Te ngunsin, te ngome zinmayin. I can see why you translate it that way. Tapping ngola ma, without touching, yeah. yeah I'm not going to try to change it, but I wish I could see the previous line. Thank you. The, um, it's not a, I mean, this is a good scholar. I mean, Roger, thank you for your work. You're a, it's just no question you're an excellent scholar. And this is not... It's, so, but the point of this is something really simple. Without touching upon the existent to be analyzed, there is no apprehension of its non-existent. The way that Pinchiner, which is interpreting this, which I think is totally sound, is if you don't identify that which is to be negated, then you'll have no means to negate it. And it's crucially important when you're realizing... The, the identitylessness or non-self of person, you are not destroying something that was there, but you're seeing something that you thought was there that turns out not to be. Like Napoleon, where I am right now. Nowhere to be found. But I could think that I really am Napoleon. And, I mean, of course that's silly. I could think that, you know, I could exaggerate all kinds of qualities that I have, you know, and take it really seriously. I'm, this, I'm not going to give an example. But, you know, it, it happens all the time. Or I can, I can have such low self-esteem that I imagine myself to be you know, something much more inferior in various ways. And grasp on, that's who I really am. I'm really such a loser. I'm really, no, I'm so superior. I'm blah, blah, blah. So let alone, I, let alone Napoleon, you know, we can exaggerate and we can deflate our sense of an identity, grasp onto that as real, whereas in fact there is no one corresponding to that. There is no one like that. But we can still apprehend ourselves as such. Not quite as crazy as thinking you're Napoleon, but still delusional. And that gives rise to so much suffering. You know, so that's what he's saying here. Without, okay, so if an object of negation is, now he says it nice and clearly. If the object of negation is not identified, then with the target unseen, the arrow will stray. 
That is, when you're applying your Vipassana, really probing in to the target, if you have not identified that which is grasped onto as being real, but which in fact doesn't exist at all, then the arrow will stray. Your, your investigation will go astray. It will miss the target. With the enemy, with, and to give another example, with the enemy unidentified, the army cannot be led. It is like that. Okay? These are, these are good analogies. Excellent. So also, if there is the... This, again, needs, needs a bit of unpacking. Anybody who knows Madhyabha can know exactly what he's meaning, what he's saying here. But if you don't, this could be like, what? Also, if there is the excess that is over-pervasion in identifying the object of negation. Okay, it's perfectly clear if you already understand what he's saying, what he's saying, but if you don't, I don't know what you get from that. But it's very clear. The, if there's over-pervasion in identifying the object of negation, it's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's negating too much. It's like finding there's a brain tumor and just cutting out half the brain. I'm sure we got it. You know, oh, by the way, he's demented now. You, it was an overextension. You cut out too much, right? But if you cut out too little, then the tumor is still there and will grow right back. So that's what he's talking about in the very next. One falls to the... If, you, if there's an overprivation, well, this happens a lot. I've seen this in a lot of contemporary Buddhist literature. Uh, there is no thinker. I've read that. You know, a lot of people think it's wonderful. Oh, thoughts without a thinker. Isn't that great? Only thoughts exist. No thinker. He just threw the baby out with the bathwater. And who was it that came to that conclusion? You know, as if thoughts exist, but thinkers don't. Now, wait a minute. There's that which you think about. There's a thinking, and there's a thinker, and they all exist in mutual interdependence. Why are you throwing out one? Thoughts don't just happen. People are very creative. They come up with all kinds of thoughts. Let's not, re- let's not deny the obvious. That's throwing the baby out with the bathwater, coming to the conclusion, oh, I checked for myself within my body, my mind, and elsewhere. I couldn't find myself anywhere. Therefore, I've come to the conclusion that I don't exist. I just received a message from someone who's been doing some investigation here and came to a sense of being non-existent and then came to the conclusion that she didn't really love her husband anymore. Because if she doesn't exist, he doesn't either. Why should I love somebody who doesn't exist? And then the stuffing was all taken out of compassion, out of empathy, of of all of that. Because I don't exist, then you don't exist. None of us exist. And so she just taken a dip into nihilism. Well, this is not foolishness. This is what happens when you investigate. You find the middle way by bouncing off the extremes. So if you've never, if you've never tasted, if you've never tasted nihilism, you should taste it briefly, because we've really tasted substantialism. We've been drinking draughts. We've been drunk on substantialism for as long as samsara has been around. I'm really here. Are you really there? Oh, yeah, we're both here. <laughs> we know substantialism really, really well. Nihilism, we've hardly even never occurred to us, you know. And so see both extremes, and then you can see what's left over. So don't come to the silly conclusion that you don't exist at all, because then you've over, that's the over privation, right? But then he says, if you follow that, you follow the nihilism, and that will undermine compassion, empathy, altruism, virtue, and everything else, because you're just a nihilist. But if there's an excess of under-pervasion, then without refuting the subtle object navigation, one falls to the extreme of eternalism, the danger is very great. He's not kidding. This is not just philosophical exercises or sophistry. And that this happens, the second one happens a lot as well. People who are trained in philosophy, 
especially in the Buddhist tradition, for example, or it happens also, there are, there are neuroscientists, many of them very smart people, that say, you know, they've checked out the brain, they don't find any CPU of the central processing unit within the brain, you know, the kind of the headquarters in the brain, and, there, and since there's no neural correlate of the self, the one who's in charge, there isn't any, then, well, we have recognized that we have recognized the absence of a central processing unit in the brain that's in charge of and organizes and runs the rest of the brain. We know that to be true. We have found the absence of such a central processing unit, and since there's no correlate of such a self, therefore there is no self. And then they come to the conclusion that the self doesn't exist. And then they go home, hug their wife and kids, and then they have to sit down and have dinner. Untouched. Because the self they've negated is just a figment of their imagination in the first place. It has no impact. See whether it makes their anger subside, craving subside, egotism subside, craving for money, prestige, wealth, power, and so forth subside. I kind of doubt it. Because it never really strikes the target. And this happens in philosophy. I'm not just beating up on neuroscientists, but people sometimes make a big deal. Oh, look, neuroscientists are coming to the same conclusion as Buddhism. No, you're not. It's a false, it's a false parallel. It's a dead end. It's a complete dead end. But it happens in Buddhist philosophy also, where people are very sophisticated. They conjure up in their minds a notion of the self, and then they apply reasoning to it, and then they refute it. And the self they've just refuted was something they just concocted. It was almost like a video game, you know. And their actual lived sense of self wasn't even touched. That happens a lot. So that's under, under pervasion. That you created this little miniature artifact, this little contrived sense of self, and then you annihilated it, and then you walk home very proud of what you've done. You know? So this danger is very great. To either, when he says, fall to the extreme of eternalism, that's the term, that's a literal translation. It would be closer to say you fall in the extreme of metaphysical realism, or you fall into the extreme of substantialism, because that's what it really means. But it is called the excess of eternalism, because by implication, if the self did exist in this way that is inherently existent, independent of conceptual designation, by implication, then it would be immutable. That's not obvious, but if you probe very deeply into this, that turns out to be the implication. And then, therefore, eternal. So the range is very, very great. And Nagarjuna's root verses on wisdom, his Mula Madhyamaka states, if their view of emptiness is wrong, those of little wisdom will be destroyed. So this is serious philosophy. We're actually living it. You're actually viewing reality. That's one of my, my criticism of materialism. I think most people who advocate it don't view reality that way. They're not taking their own belief system seriously. Because they, they view their loved ones as real people who are morally responsible, who are not just blobs of protoplasm. They regard themselves as having will, making decisions, and being responsible for them. You know, uh, well, None of that's compatible with materialism. So they're not willing to follow the implications of their own beliefs. They're not willing to live it. So then what's the point? It would be so horrific. William James... William James was indoctrinated into scientific materialism as a medical school at Harvard in the 1860s, I think it was. And he was taught in medical school, you have no will. 
you're just a machine. This is an immediate implication of materialism. You're just a machine. You're not making any decisions. What feels like decisions are just the echo of brain activity taking place. And you're just along for the ride, but you have no efficacy of your own. You don't do, you're not an agent. This is false notion of, of identity. This is horrifically false. You're not an agent. Why? Not because there's an emptiness of agency, as in Madhyamala. No, because the brain's the agent. And the brain is absolutely real. And you're just a figment. You're fluff. You're an epiphenomenon, or just nothing at all. And it's just the brain in, in the embodied in the body and the body in the physical world, running according to the inexorable laws of physics and chemistry. And the machine is grinding away. And you are nothing. You're along for the ride, and you have no efficacy of your own. And this man... He couldn't do philosophy as, a, as a, a spectator sport. He took it in. He took it in. And boy, do I sympathize with him. He went almost catatonic. He was almost catatonic. You can read about it in his, in his brilliant book, uh, Varieties of Religious Experience. He refers to someone, he doesn't say to, by name, but it's him, who slipped into, in, into a depression, a sense of hopelessness, of helplessness, of radical existential disempowerment, so profound that he could hardly move. It was absolutely debilitating, right down to his core. And he could have stayed there, but he remembered the writings. He was very, very erudite very, and very transatlantic, never considered Asian religions, understandably. Hardly anybody did in the West at that time. But he was very transatlantic, and he read the Philosophical writings of a French philosopher by the name of Renouvier, who said, man's first act of free will is to decide that you have free will. That we are not compelled by the evidence to believe that we have no free will. It's not conclusive. It's not definitive. There is no proof. Therefore, you can choose to believe that you can make choices. And that is a choice you can make. It was like being out in the ocean and seeing one little little sliver of wood that you can hold on to. I'll take it. And he said that was his way out of this absolutely debilitating depression, is that would be my first act of free will, to affirm that I have it. You know. So it's a good story. So, so when he says this is, the danger is very great, I'm suggesting very seriously that's the implication if you really start really from moment to moment, you're fusing your so-called belief system with your way of viewing reality. You will view others as robots. You will view yourself as robots. You will view nobody as having any responsibility, nobody making any choices, being fundamentally mindless, coming from nothing and dissolving into nothing, with no meaning anywhere in the universe, not in yourself or outside. If you're not depressed, you're not paying attention. Really, how can anybody have a happy day while actually viewing reality in that way? Because these are the immediate and necessary implications of being a straightforward materialist. This is why I harp on it so much. It's not just some crazy bunch of ideas. Depression rates are going through the roof right now. Mental illness is going up. Anxiety going up. Depression going up. We have all these drugs, all these marvelous psychologists and psychologists trying to battle the wave. It's like trying to battle, battle a tsunami, a 30-foot tsunami with, with paddle boards. It's not the psychologist's fault. 
It's just we're all being indoctrinated into, unless we have a religious context that we're holding fast to, to a worldview that is just crushing. I think it really is diabolical. If their view of emptiness is wrong, those of little wisdom will be destroyed. It's like a snake seized in the wrong way or a spell wrongly executed. Therefore, knowing the Dharma's profundity, which is difficult for the feeble-minded to realize, the sage taught that from his teaching the Dharma, misconceptions would occur. It's subtle. The Buddhist teaching is on not-self in the Pali Canon. The teachings in the Prachapanamita on emptiness, they're subtle. And if one is feeble-minded, the chances are very high you'll miss it. And you'll either settle back into comfortable substantialism and have a concocted notion of emptiness or non-self, or you'll tip right over into the other extreme and just wind up being a nihilist. So the stakes are high. People are taking this seriously. And the benefits are enormous if you do find that middle way, which in the same breath, all phenomena are empty and they are rising as dependently related events. It opens the heart to compassion, deepens the compassion, rather than smothering it. Well, that's enough for one afternoon.